Welcome to History Talk, where we bring together a panel of experts to discuss current events and historical perspective. I'm your host, Mark Sikalski. Today, we turn our attention to infrastructure, the roads, pipes, bridges, and wires that tie us together and make our everyday lives possible. Our public infrastructure is itself a kind of living history, a physical reminder that things built long ago continue to shape our existence today. Recently, lead contamination in the water system of Flint, Michigan, as well as other municipalities, uh, including in Ohio, has underlined the fact that there are glaring problems with the public infrastructure in the United States. On today's panel, three experts join us to discuss the development and politics of infrastructure, how it came to be in such disrepair, and where we go from here. Hi, my name is Bernadette Hanlon. I'm an assistant professor at the uh, City and Regional Planning Program here at uh, Ohio State University. And um, my work is focused mostly on issues around suburban suburbanization, suburban growth and decline. Hi, my name is uh, Clay Howard, and I teach uh, history in the Department of History here at Ohio State, and I specialize in uh, urban and suburban history, particularly after World War II. Hi, I'm Stephen Kahn. I'm a professor of history in the history department at Miami University down in Oxford, Ohio, where I also teach urban history, among other things. Well, thank you all very much for joining us today. Before we jump into our discussion, host Patrick Patyandi interviewed the executive director of the American Society of Civil Engineers, Tom Smith, to give us an update on where things stand today. This is Patrick Patyandi, and I'm speaking over the phone with Tom Smith, executive director of the American Society of Civil Engineers. Tom, thank you for joining us today on History Talk. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So to start off, your organization, the ASCE, produces a national report card every four years. Can you briefly describe what it is? You bet. We started this report card back in 1998. Uh, The concept for that actually started in 1988 with the National Council on Public Works Improvement. They issued a report on America's public works. Oh, interesting. Yeah, congressionally chartered. And so 10 years later, we said it'd be nice if that report uh, continued. So we said, let's start our own. And we did that in 1998 to continue that on. And we then issued the report in 2001, 2005, 2009, as well as uh, 2013. Great. And can you give us some details on the report cards, you know, size and scope, uh, maybe a little bit on how the ASCE goes about conducting this evaluation? Sure. Uh, And by the way, the next report card will come out in 2017. What we do is we look at 16 categories of America's infrastructure. So that includes aviation, bridges, dams, drinking water, energy, hazardous waste, inland waterways, levees, ports, public parks and recreation, rail, roads, schools, solid waste, transit, uh, and wastewater. And overall, then we have a cumulative uh, grade point average, and we do it just like you would uh, you know, a, a report card that your kids would take home. Um, and uh, unfortunately, right now, the cumulative uh, GPA is a D plus, although that is actually in 2013 higher than it was uh, in 2009 when it was at a D. Okay, so uh, there has been a little bit improvement in, in the most recent years then. Yes. In fact, uh, none of the categories went down uh, between 2009 and 2013, and six categories did go up. But again, our grade is, is still at a D plus, so it's certainly not uh, a grade that you'd be proud to take home and show your parents. Yeah, exactly. Nothing to write home about, certainly. Um, are there any specific examples you'd like to highlight to show you know, just how bad some of our infrastructure has become? Well, you know, in general, I'll just mention some things are out of sight, out of mind, I'm I'm afraid. Things like uh, uh, drinking water and and wastewater networks. Um, We have about 240,000 water line breaks 
uh, every year. So it's every, every couple of minutes there's a water oh, wow. outbreak in the United States. Yeah, and so unfortunately these things are also part of a larger system. So you know here here in D.C. I was downtown um, in 2014 when the D.C. Metro water line broke, and then it, it shuts down the metro. Uh, so two three lines break to, go down, and so now all that that's shutting down your transit system, and all those people are going up to find uh, you know taxis and to see if they can get on buses, and so there's just gridlock in the on the transportation system. So those things are all interconnected. So we, we do see that, unfortunately, uh, with uh, many different areas, both in transportation, um, uh, uh, water lines, et cetera. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that some of these are, are out of sight, out of mind. Why do you think that is? Why is it so easy for folks to forget about these sorts of things? You know, I just we, we I think we just take it for granted, right? You know, the, you, you turn on the water and you get clean water every day, and and and, and wastewater is removed, and and we just don't think about it. Uh, I think maybe sometimes the transportation sitting in in traffic, people do realize it, um, but it's uh, unfortunately we've got much of our infrastructure has been built many decades ago, post World War II, our our interstate highway system, and. And these things require operation and maintenance, and we're, we're nearing the end of the uh, useful life of, of much of our infrastructure, and so we have to maintain it just as you would at you know, your home or your car. Right. And so lastly, what would you like to happen next? How might we address this uh, you know, huge problem? Well, the first thing we tried to do is just change the conversation and make sure everybody's aware of the issue, and that's, Great, that's okay. one of the things we've done with the report card. Um, there, we, we really need to increase our leadership when it comes to infrastructure renewal. We need to also focus on sustainability and resilience, and we need to develop and fund plans to maintain uh, our infrastructure. Um, so with relative to transportation, we've been a big advocate of increasing the, the, the gas tax as a, as a uh, sustainable financial way. Right, which hasn't uh, been increased for some years, right? Yes, since 1992. It's, uh, so it's, we, we just don't have the funding mechanism in place. And unfortunately, with, with infrastructure, the people who use it are going to have to pay for it. We all have to pay for infrastructure. We all benefit from it. Okay. Well, Tom Smith is the executive director of the American Society of Civil Engineers, or ASCE, which every four years produces a report card on America's infrastructure. Tom, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. Now we turn to our three panelists, Steve Kahn, Clay Howard, and Bernadette Hanlon. So to start off, how is it that the world's richest country receives a, a D-plus on its public infrastructure? How did we get to this point? Maybe, Clay, we can start with you. There's probably a lot of reasons. And I would say that one one important one would be, you know, suburbanization itself creates a kind of fragmented metropolitan region. And so a lot of time states and the federal government steer resources, particularly things like roads and like sewers and power lines and things like that, to the edge of metropolitan areas. And very often, the bulk of the funding goes to building new infrastructure instead of replacing old infrastructure. And as you get new municipalities, there's competition for taxes and jobs and so forth. And so a lot of the suburbs and core cities struggle to, to balance their budgets and find ways to, to, to maintain infrastructure that was built sometimes 60, 70 years ago. You know, I think uh, Clay's right about that, but I want to I want to sound much more simplified. I think the problem here is the tax revolts that started in the 1970s and were carried to Washington in the 1980s by uh, the Reagan administration. I think one of the enormous things that happened in what Reagan called his new federalism was a shift in the responsibility for these kinds of projects to states and then localities. The federal government 
really stopped spending the money and told the states it was essentially their problems. And states either chose not to invest in maintaining these infrastructures or really didn't have the capacity to do that because they needed the help from the federal government. So this is this is not a technological problem. This is not an engineering problem. We know how to fix the sewer lines. This is a problem of money and the unwillingness of people to spend money on it. Yeah, I, I echo that. Um, the federal government has really withdrawn an awful lot in terms of funding for infrastructure to cities and states. You know, when I, li- I used to live in Baltimore City, and, and Baltimore had a huge problem with its sewer infrastructure and lots of leaky sewers creating all sorts of environmental problems. And um, the EPA basically mandated that the city fix its sewer infrastructure to the cost of close to a billion dollars. And not really, it was sort of seen as an unfunded kind of mandate. And I think this is a really big problem. Because Um, Baltimore doesn't have a billion dollars to just sort of pull out of its pocket. Exactly. So um, it it takes the federal government, I think, to really uh, pump that kind of money into into what's needed. When did the federal government get into the infrastructure game in a big way? I mean, when did it become so essential? Well, in my reading of things, I think these infrastructure projects start at the local level in the 19th century. That continues through the early 20th century, but during the New Deal in the 1930s, these kinds of projects became seen as a a federal responsibility and and federal action. So you think about things like uh, the road building projects that the WPA and other federal agencies built. I think that's really the moment when the federal government gets into this business in a in a big way. And that's when we also start to see the planning for large-scale infrastructure projects. Um, Dwight Eisenhower, President Dwight Eisenhower, is usually given credit for the interstate highway system, which is the, uh, you know, he did sign that legislation in 1956. But what he was signing was a plan that had really begun to percolate in the 30s, and, and World War II got in the way, and so on and so forth. But that's really, I think, the 30s is the moment when these infrastructure projects are seen as a national priority. One of the things that I thought was interesting as I was thinking about um, coming here for this podcast was, you know, a lot of times the federal government has, uh, you know, we're posing the question of about infrastructure and maintaining infrastructure and how has it gotten so bad. But often these these things get built with the idea of economic development in the future in mind. So the New Deal often was about trying to counteract the effects of depression. Uh, the first big federal involvement in infrastructure would be, I think, subsidies for the railroads in the 19th century. Sure. And the idea was both to create jobs like on railroads, but also that, that this is good for the larger economy. And so to some degree, the beginning of the project is uh, about future economic development and making that happen, but also not necessarily like the idea of like maintaining that infrastructure is not necessarily the biggest justification for doing something. It's an imagined future that's that's important to them. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about what Clay's talking about here is a lot of our infrastructure is actually private. I mean, if you think about airlines, you think about the internet, you think about all the telecommunications, you think about they're, they're, they're really owned by private entities and regulated, you know, electricity and so on. But, um, you know, it, it, there's also that element, too, that we're not really um, discussing necessarily as, as potentially kind of problematic, although you could say that 
there are some issues when there's any kind of storm event where your electricity is going to go down. But um, with this idea that, you know, there's economic opportunity with that. And so the private sector kind of takes that on. And then maybe at some point the federal government starts to or other or sort of investment needs to happen. But so that's a really interesting point that that's really important, Bernadette. And, and I hadn't really thought about it in that way. And I guess I, I wonder, though, about those moments when uh, the project or the or the technology here has, in a sense, two sides to it. One is the profit-making side, uh, and the other is the necessary infrastructure side, which isn't necessarily a profit-making. So I'm thinking about the electric grid, right? All of our electricity comes from power companies who are out to make a profit on our electricity use, but nobody wants to take responsibility for repairing the grid because that's not immediately profitable on my monthly right. right on my monthly bill and and that's i think part of the dilemma here is that if it's profitable then you know our cell phones will get updated but if it isn't the networks that hold our cell phones together may not may not work anymore right right do you think that this sort of fracturing into private networks is uh, increasing or has been increasing in the recent past or this is something sort of more of the railroad age than of today that's a good question. Well, you know, I think it has been the dream. So, so when I talk about this this shift in in the in the financing that begins in the 1980s, what I refer to when I teach this uh, as the age of deferred maintenance, the you know the kicking the can down the road, the dream of certain kind of uh, free market economists is that the private sector will figure out a way to do these projects. There was mm, 10 or maybe more years ago uh, a project on the drawing boards to build a privately funded superhighway in Texas. And they had a financing model for this. It was not going to be, you know, I, I assume the, the land would all be seized by eminent domain. But uh, nonetheless, the building was all going to be funded privately. That didn't go anywhere. Uh, there's also a project on the drawing board right now to build a bullet train, a high-speed rail link between Houston and Dallas, all privately funded. It remains to be seen whether that will go anywhere. Uh, I think there, there, it has always been the sort of the holy grail of a certain set of economists that we don't need to pay for this. It will, it will be done by the private sector, but thus far it hasn't happened. Yeah, that's important to point out, too. I think that whether we're talking about like the railroads in the 1860s and 1870s or where we're talking about the Internet or some other piece of infrastructure today, the government is always involved. Right. It's it would be it would be unfair to, to break it into pure public and private. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just because everything doesn't look like the interstate highway system doesn't mean that the government isn't isn't present. And yeah, there's people who have a kind of like a free market vision of what infrastructure could look like. But more often, whether it's, you know, uh, pork, pork barrel projects of one kind or another, but there's always a kind of subsidy for large corporations who are building infrastructure. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think this is, this goes back to the question you posed at the outset. How did, how did we get to this point where, according to the uh, the engineers, we have a D plus on our uh, on our infrastructure report card, and I think Americans as a whole love government support, but they don't want to be reminded of it. They want it to be hidden, and they therefore want to take it for granted. And I think in microcosm, that's our infrastructure problem. All of this stuff has been built with combinations of public support. 
and 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 some private investments, but we don't want to be reminded of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just want it to be there when we turn the spigot on or we get on the on-ramp. Yeah, I mean, just to think about jumping back to something that Clay had mentioned earlier about the government structure, and I think this is really important when you think about issues like what occurred in Flint, you know, where you see a sort of decades of disinvestment occurring in certain jurisdictions and some central cities as the suburbs kind of continue to grow. We've reached a point there where we'd really essentially abandoned uh, some of these places uh, to leave them to kind of deal with their own kind of problems. And, you know, that not being possible with loss of tax base and all of these things that they end up not being able to really fund their own infrastructure. And I think so our kind of model of growth and kind of this constant kind of um, shifting outwards in terms of suburbanization, I think does play a large role in some of these issues, I think. Yeah, Yeah, I was gonna say, thinking a lot about like the tax revolt and, you know, and, and of course, I want to acknowledge the very real infrastructure problems that exist. But, you know, when I was thinking about this, I feel like there is a bipartisan consensus among voters when it comes to highway construction. And they say, like, what is the role of government? You know, road building is one of them. And uh, I was just, I was doing some research about Texas before I came here, and I saw that they just passed a constitutional amendment that allows the state to move some tax money around. They're not going to raise taxes, right? So Steve's right. They, like The government doesn't want to be seen as raising taxes, but they're moving money in order to, to build more highways and to maintain the highways they already have to try and, and fix the budget. So, so to some degree, people like infrastructure. Oh, yeah, they just don't want to pay for it. Well, yeah, that's what it comes down to. I, I mean, the federal gasoline tax, I don't think, has budged in almost 20 years. Mm-mm. And people just really don't seem to want to acknowledge that it costs money to fix the potholes. It's as if somehow this is going to fix themselves. And, you know, so at the end of the day, the the infrastructure report card that, that we started the, the show off with is really just a, a grade on a political process. Uh, because Clay's right. I think if you asked any voter of any uh, stripe, should we have good roads and, and should the water not have lead in it? And on and on, everybody would say absolutely. But as soon as you say, okay, well, how much are you willing to raise your taxes or your or the gasoline tax, whatever, to uh, to repair these things? Everybody says no. And that's, you know, that's just a straightforward political problem. And my potholes are always more important than those potholes. <laughs> that's right? certainly right. You know? uh, damn it. Uh, so, I, yeah, and I... I I, I was thinking coming in about the way in which our the, the infrastructure trajectory that we've seen in this country, where we, we built it and now we've let it crumble, tracks a certain kind of attitude we have about how we define the common good in this country or how we have stopped thinking in terms of the common good. It used to be that everybody, uh, again, of all political stripes, acknowledged that there were certain basic things that you needed as a society, certain kinds of infrastructures and investments. And you fought over maybe how big or how little you were going to do or whether you were going to extend this road or not maybe extend this road, but there wasn't a fundamental disagreement over what defined the common good. And now, again, over the last 30 years, there are significant numbers of political politicians who don't believe there's a common good at all, and therefore we shouldn't have to pay for something that that they don't acknowledge really exists. So I want to pick on um, the late, great Chris Christie uh, for a moment, because (laughs) I think his political career over the last 
two and a half years, illustrates beautifully how what was once the common good has simply become another piece of uh, political shenanigans. So he, you know, got into a great deal of trouble when it was discovered that he and his uh, inner circle of high school buddies closed the George Washington Bridge, right, or certain, right, so we're going to play with this infrastructure as a way of punishing certain politicians in uh, in municipalities in New Jersey for not supporting Chris Christie. And at almost the same moment when that story was breaking, uh, Chris Christie decided not to partner with the state of New York to build a third rail tunnel under the Hudson River to connect New Jersey with New York. Now, everybody acknowledges that that project needs to be built, that this choke point in the freight and passenger rail is, is strangling the economy, uh, the, the tunnels that currently exist are 100 years old, uh, and Chris Christie, getting ready to run for president, knew that he needed to position himself as a guy who wasn't going to spend any public money. So passengers and freight trains, be damned, uh, he was going to demonstrate that he wasn't going to build a public project, even though we all know it needs to be built. Is it possible to shift a kind of sense of responsibility to localities or um to states in a way that's fis- you know fiscally feasible, or is that just it's beyond the capabilities of local governments? You know, ultimately, infrastructure is a question of our our connectedness, mm-hmm. right? I mean, ultimately, uh, if you're building a road or some kind of power line or, or, or water system, it, you know, it, it's something that's going to be have to be done at least regionally, if not larger. And then if you have fragmented metropolitan regions where different cities and suburbs are competing with one another, that undercuts the possibility for cooperation. So to some degree, the federal government is is the entity that has the ability to, to bridge those kinds of competitive divisions. Yeah, I mean, some of these municipalities are really small. If you're talking about some of these suburbs, they can be, you know, only a couple of thousand people. Um, they just don't have the government capacity to do something like that in any kind of major scale. Yeah, and I think, again, you just follow on what Clay just said, um, Flint is a really wonderful example of how this this was a problem seen in inside a particular city, but it was the result of a set of regionally regional dominoes that all began to fall, mm-hmm. water that was from the Detroit water system now being purchased from a different water system coming out of the lake but not yet coming out of a different – so those are at least regional problems and, and frankly, multi-regional problems when you start talking about those kinds of uh, shared resources and whatnot. You know, the, it, the, the interstate highway system doesn't work if you can drive really nicely across Massachusetts and then, you know, you hit – the New York border and you can't, you know, and the roads are terrible. That's not, that's not really uh, a workable system. And I don't know if you wanted to talk about the Flint water crisis, but you asked about the federal government and, you know, to a fair degree, the federal government bears responsibility for what happened in Flint, not just in the sense of direct money for water, but since suburbanization itself was federally subsidized, the federal government after World War II encouraged industries and businesses to relocate away from older urban areas and particularly to the Sun Belt, but also to, to suburbs around Flint. And then, you know, the, the whole question of Flint water crisis hinges on this manager that gets appointed by the state to take over because Flint is bankrupt. And the question is, why is, why is Flint bankrupt? And that's because for most of the 20th century, particularly after World War II, and then in later in the 70s and 80s, most of the tax base left, either to wider Genesee County or the South. Mexico. Or, yeah, or another, mm-hmm. another part of the world. And so 
to the extent that the federal government, you know, facilitated that process, which it did, uh, it bears responsibility for fixing it. Just to clarify, what exactly did the federal government do to encourage uh, suburbanization, to encourage people to move outside of the inner city? Sure. So there are a number of different things. And one was that uh, there are things like the GI Bill mm-hmm. or uh, the Federal Housing Administration. The government insured home loans to banks. And essentially, like the, the short version is that they said to the banks, if you agree to follow a set of rules that we'll give you, we will reimburse you for people who default on their loans. And this is most talked about in suburban history as it relates to redlining and segregation because FHA guidelines and VA guidelines uh, redlined predominantly black areas and said these are bad places to lend money. So this is a kind of a whites-only policy. Um, but they also did it through the secondary mortgage market where they were you know, trying to encourage outside investment. And so the government bought up mortgages in a way to try and demonstrate confidence in the mortgage market and trying to get outside investment to, to buy the mortgages of newer suburban developments. And, and can I just throw in there as well that the uh, FHA and the variety of federally sponsored mortgage programs placed a real premium on uh, new construction. So it was, yeah. it was increasingly difficult to, to get those kinds of subsidies for older buildings, but you could get them quite easily for new houses. And so where are the older houses and where are the newer houses? It stimulated that growth because that's where the, that's where the money was. That's right. I think, I think it, this is, the stat is something like eight or nine out of 10 houses that got FHA or VA subsidies after World War II were built outside of mm. older metropolitan or older urban areas. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. You could argue that we're still subsidizing with the mortgage interest tax deduction that people get on, on, on home, right. owning mm-hmm. their own home. And we could argue that that's the, I mean, that is one of the biggest subsidies for housing that the federal government has. Right. <laughs> and we don't like and, to think of it as a subsidy, but um, essentially that's what it is. And so you could, could argue that this subsidization of suburbanization continues today. Hmm. So just to uh, wrap things up, what do you think needs to happen to to raise that grade, to get more public investment in infrastructure, um, thinking back to some of the shifts that have occurred over the 19th and 20th centuries? Wow. Well, we're historians. Yeah. No, we, we worry about the past. I'll say two things. Two things. One would be some kind of metropolitan or regional government, which is something that I know planners talk about, right? It's something, something to unite the interests of a metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think Steve's right to point out that a lot of this is uh, people reluctant to pay more in taxes. But like I said earlier, I do think I do think people do believe that road building or infrastructure building is a function of government, both for their own lives and as a part of economic development, like for better or for worse. And you see moments like the bridge collapse in Minneapolis where people really start to panic about it. And I think the Flint crisis, at least for some people at least, is a moment mm-hmm. where people are having a, a kind of conversation like this one about about the need to, to make sure that we're paying enough to fund infrastructure. Um, and I think it's also important to, getting back to some of these regional kind of issues and, you know, with, in terms of regional planning, I mean, one of the one of the things is to also think about well what kinds of infrastructure do we want to invest in and you know we we've done a really poor job of investing in any kind of public transit for instance so i think it's it's also the politics of what we decide how we decide to spend this money um, is also important because if you have more public transit you won't have as much growth you won't have as much abandonment of 
you know, existing cities. Um, maybe we'll see more reinvestment then in the aging infrastructure of those places. I mean, these are big decisions, I think. Um, you know, as I was thinking about this dilemma, because I knew you were going to ask us this question, <laughs> um, I was thinking about the analogy of the public schools, which everybody acknowledges is in, are in crisis. And in fact, have everybody has said they've been in crisis for 50 years. And the analogy I want to make is that everybody thinks the public schools are failing, except their own. People are generally happy with their own – the public school they send their own kids to. It's everybody else's schools that are failing. And I think that's the problem for infrastructure. The bridge collapsed in Minneapolis. I'm not anywhere near Minneapolis. So that's a terrible story I hear on the 630 News and, oh, my goodness. But until it hits home, I'm not motivated necessarily to start agitating, organizing, calling my congressperson to, to complain about it. And these infrastructure fails are all, in a sense, on a small scale in local places. And so trying to create some sense of political momentum nationally or even regionally to, to fix these problems is a, is a real challenge, I think. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there. But thank you all very much for joining us today. We've had with us today Bernadette Hanlon, Assistant Professor of City and Regional Planning at Ohio State University, Clay Howard, Assistant Professor of History at Ohio State University, and Stephen Kahn, Professor of History at Miami University. Thanks, everybody. Thanks Thank so you. much, Mark. Thank Thanks. You. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at the Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Payandi and Mark Sikolsky. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcast and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes, and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thanks for listening. <laughs>